Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We are a family on a journey to become more like Christ, sharing His kingdom by expressing His love. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. All right, folks. I, um, I want to share with you this morning, I want to round out the series that we've been on Today is going to be part four of the series From Cliché to Character. Uh, You might be saying to me, Michael, by now this is starting to become a bit of a cliché. And I'm with you. I'm with you. I got you. So we're rounding it out today, okay? This is it. Um, Just to remind you, for for those of you who who don't remember, what is a cliché? It's it's something that once held meaning or significance in our lives, but yet we've become, it's been either overused or we've just become so familiar with it that it no longer shifts us. It no longer has the impact it once had. And really the heart behind all of this is, is, is for us as believers to realize that in many ways, having been in church, having been part of meetings like this for many years, for most of us, we become familiar with the Word of God. We become familiar with certain scriptures or certain promises and in the, in the beginning, when those, those promises quickened our hearts, or those challenges quickened us, or convicted us, or shifted us, they just no longer carry that same weight. The Word hasn't changed. The Word is still as powerful and it's still as true as it ever was. We've just become accustomed to it, or familiar with it, to the point where sometimes we need to address our hearts because it no longer carries the weight in us that it used to do. So, in part one, um, we looked at the journey of this fight of faith where we wrestle with the expectation that God's Word creates for us versus the reality of what we see around us and the natural expectations we have based on natural probability and natural reasoning of what may or may not happen. The journey from cliche to character is that wrestle, it's that fight to to position ourselves in what God says about who we are and what He's called us to versus you know, just the natural things that we can see around us. We looked at Abraham and Sarah, how they had to grapple with their own natural bodies, being old at 99 years old, Abraham's, and at, uh, at, at 89, Sarah's body when she conceived, and, and all of these things. God's Word, to def- and really they had to allow God's Word to define a different expectation than what their natural circumstances foretold. And really, I think what we, what we came away with, and what I hope you came away with out of that first one, and as we've been going through this week, these weeks, is number one, that this wrestle of faith, this grapple of faith, is a perfectly normal thing. You don't, we often venerate those who are either in ministry full-time or those who we read about in the Bible as these guys who just had remarkable faith and they never struggled, they never grappled with it. But actually, when we read the narrative of the Bible, there's not a person who accomplished anything great for the Lord who didn't have deep inner struggles as well as opposition and things that they had to overcome. So here's the good news. You're normal. Well... You're normal. This is a normal fight. This is a normal struggle that every one of us have to face. And every one of us is, every one of our battles is unique. Every one of our struggles is unique. And and so to compare yourself with anybody else is also a really bad idea. But the, the truth of the matter is that in the process of the wrestle, we are changed. And that's the point. That's the point. Nobody ever grew or grew in the capacity or caliber without struggle, without tests, without trials. We grow through these things. So in part two, we look then at the difference between doubt, 
where we reject what the Word of God says because it's just sometimes impossible to believe or too good to be true or how could that possibly be for me? Or we believe it and we enter into the fullness of it, but we also looked at the third, the third sort of category that the Bible spends a lot of time talking about, which is this area of unbelief, which is where we grapple and where we vacillate. And we play the yes, but game. Yes, but God's word says. Yes, but my circumstances say. Yes, but this. And we, we, we put opinions on scales as if they have equal weight or equal value, whereas they don't. And that's the battle we, 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 we talked about there, um, that faith of the past doesn't guarantee a better tomorrow. In other words, what I believe God for there is it was great to get me to where I am, but I'm going to need something new for where God wants to take me we looked at the importance of where it is that we fix our attention and the fact that the, this battle from cliche to character, making God's word something that is alive and working in our hearts is, is one in the supply lines where we begin to cut off the supply of every other voice and everything that begins to speak against what God's word says so that we can give our attention fully to what God's word says about us, to what God's heart says about us, about our situation, about our life and so that we can align our hearts and minds with that. Last week, we spoke about that transition. The first two weeks were all about inward conviction, believing something, choosing to orientate our lives in a certain way and embrace a certain conviction. Last week, we spoke about taking that conviction to a practical outworking. Because it has to find a practical outworking. Otherwise, it just remains good intention. There's no power in it otherwise. Amen? And this, ta- this makes us different from the world around us because we are now taking an expectation we're taking a truth that doesn't seem to be uh, reflected in the world around us and we go and position ourselves in this with this new truth in a world that is filled with darkness and that makes us light and we take this world this word which is salty because it savors into a world that needs it and Jesus said go and be salt and light So in other words, this battle from cliche to character, what it ought to do is bring us into a resemblance of Jesus Christ himself, his way of thinking, his way of living, his way of loving people so that we go into the world and literally shine God's light into the world around us, his love into the darkness, his mercy, his hope, his grace. It makes us people of influence, And as St. Francis of Assisi, I think it was him who said, go out into all the world and preach the gospel and where necessary, use words. In other words, you go and you shine. We are different. We're different from within because we've allowed this, this truth through the grappling to change not just our minds but to change who we are. Today I want to round out this series by discussing what I think has become probably the greatest cliche of them all, both inside and outside the church. Today I'm actually going to talk to you about a cliché. And it's the cliché on which our entire life of faith hangs. Today I want to talk to you about the true magnitude and meaning of the cross. The cross. Not that one, but it looked a lot like that, I'm sure. You see, the cross means many things to many people. To some it's a fashion accessory. It's something they ink on their bodies. To some people, it's a religious icon. You know, and then we get into arguments whether Jesus should still be on it 
or whether Jesus should be off it. Do you have a cross with Jesus on it? Because no, he's risen again and you should have a cross. We argue about silly things like that. <laughs> to some, it's just sort of an identity. It's, we, we belong to a Christian nation. Or we're Western and somehow being Western means Christian and that's kind of associated with the cross. We also throw out the cliche, you know, someone's going through a hard time or they're struggling with something, oh, we all have our crosses to bear. We talk about the cross as, it's, as, as if it's a burden, as if it's some kind of inconvenience. But to the people of Jesus' time, it meant one thing. It meant only one thing. And there was no varying from the one thing that it meant. Slow, agonizing, humiliating death. You see, the people of Jesus' time lived in an age where people were being crucified before them, just outside the city wall. Young and old, rich and poor alike, had most likely seen a crucifixion, had seen the torture, had heard the screams, had heard the cries. Most people were probably just familiar with the sight of being about their business in the marketplace. Kids are on their way home from rabbinical school and they're going to pick up some groceries in the basket on the way when there's shouting and screaming and just clear the path and clear the way because somebody is carrying their cross up outside the city to go and be crucified. You see, the Romans used the cross as a means of death, but they made those who were suffering the penalty of crucifixion carry their own instrument of death. And that's really significant. They had to carry their own in, the instrument of death. And here's the significance of that. Those people had to be forced to do it. Yet our Savior, Jesus, came. He came out of heaven. He came to earth to live a life of perfection so that he could take upon himself willingly the cross that you and I deserved and to pay the price and to shed his blood on our behalf. To him, this was no fashion accessory. To him, this was no cultural recognition. It was death. Perhaps you and I have allowed the implications of the message of the cross just to become a cliche. We come in here, we see it every week. Everywhere we go, the cross is there. You know, to us, the cross has become an, an item of judgment. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, but they got a cross on the back of their car. You know, you could be crossed before. Now you can be cross-cross. Perhaps there was a time when the cross of Jesus had a, a meaningful impact in our lives. And I believe that that is true of all of us because we're here today as believers. For me to stand in front of you and to tell you the cross is just a cliche, no, I'm not doing that. But what I'm saying is the power, the magnitude of what that cross meant then, in that moment to you and I, as well as what it ought to mean to you and I every single day, might well have been lost along the way. I have to admit in myself, as I was preparing for this and searching my heart, this was, this, what I'm sharing with you today is a very difficult message to preach because I keep coming back to myself and realizing, God, this has become light to me in some areas. God, I've got to stand before your people and preach this message. Have I really embraced the cross and now I'm going to preach about it? So it's been a grapple. I'm working through this along with you. So I know that at some point in every one of our lives, the cross was an impactful event. It had an impactful meaning on us. But maybe now it's sort of been neatly packaged and put away in the closet of our minds in a clearly marked box that we don't much like to open. We don't like to go there. 
Because we know that when we pick it up and we take it down, we're going to hear the nails clanging around inside of us, and that makes us quiver deep inside. We don't like to do that, and so we try to avoid taking out the cross and feeling its, its rugged edges and the sting of its splinters. We don't want to go there. We don't want to do that. It's uncomfortable. We don't like facing up to what that cross really means to us. But today, as we're all here together, I want to ask you, let's take out that box. Let's open that box. Let's take out the cellophane or the bubble wrap, whatever you've put that, that cross in, in your heart or in your life. I'm speaking metaphorically, obviously. But let's take out that cross this morning. Let's take out those nails and let's remember what they mean. Let's feel the ruggedness of that cross. Let's allow the splinters to, to feel what they feel like. You see, there was a time when Jesus began to teach his disciples about what was going to happen to him and what was going to happen in his life. And we read about that in Matthew 16, and we're going to read it together now from the New Living Translation, verse 21. It says, From then on, Jesus began to teach his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders and the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. Let's just pause for a second. What I haven't told you is that just before this is the moment when Peter has his epiphany that Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Some say Elijah the prophet, some say John the Baptist. But who do you say? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He has this amazing revelation, and Jesus stands and he says, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So there are all the disciples together. And this is, Jesus is, is really affirming and confirming the prophetic words that they are all so familiar with, that he is that one. He is the sent Messiah come to, to rescue them. He went on to say that he would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. So Jesus is saying, guys, from here on out, you're following me. But from here, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be crucified. And here we see Peter, in verse 22, took Jesus aside. He didn't do this in front of everybody. He said, Jesus, can I just have a word with you? And he took Jesus aside, and he began to reprimand him for saying such things. <laughs> and he said, heaven forbid, Lord. No, no. No, how can this be? You, you, you're the Messiah. How can it be that you are going to do these things? This will never happen to you. He's rebuking Jesus here. You see, this is the same guy. I mean, he loved Jesus. This is the same guy who in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, took one of their swords and cut off the guy's head. He was fighting tooth and nail for Jesus. He, he believed, okay? But his perception of what this was going to look like was skewed. And he was following Jesus with a perception that led him to act and behave in a way that wasn't congruent with the message in the heart of what Jesus was saying. He must have thought, I've just heard you are the Christ, and now you're going to be crucified? No, we've been waiting for you. What are you talking about? But then Jesus turns to Peter and says, get away from me, you Satan. In other words, you deceiver, you trickster, you tempter. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. You see, Jesus said some very interesting things. He says, you are a dangerous trap to me. He recognized the voice of the enemy. Why? Because when he was in the desert, it was the same voice that spoke to him. That said, Jesus, don't worry about the suffering and all this fasting. Aren't you hungry? 
Come on, eat, man. Satisfy your flesh. Satisfy yourself. You know, you're the Messiah. Don't you want everyone to worship you? Just throw yourself from the temple. Just do, you know, why, why going this hard road? Why all the price and the cost? And here we have the same thing. Jesus, no, you don't have to be crucified. And he recognized that voice. And he said, uh-uh, you be quiet. You're a trap to me. You see, the idea that the Christian life, folks, is one of comfort and, and one of just pleasure and blessing is a dangerous deception. It's a dangerous deception. When we set out to avoid personal suffering and even use the Bible to do so in our pursuit for personal comfort, what we're doing is we're prioritizing ourselves over what Christ may want. He's, we are prioritizing ourselves, our will, our comfort over the will of God. And what is the result of this altercation with Peter? So Jesus has this altercation with Peter now, and he says, no, Peter, you got this wrong. He then goes back to his disciples and he sits with all of them and he says, guys, I just told you I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to have to die. I'm going to have to suffer and all these things are going to happen to me. But in verse 24, he says to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. It's a, it's a poignant moment it's a deep and it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a weighty moment where Jesus has told him exactly what's going to happen to him and he's by saying to him, guys, if you want to follow me any further, if you want to come, the same thing it's going to cost me, it's going to cost you. I think, I think it was um, James and John who, whose mother said that, they, you know, Jesus, can you let them sit at either side of your throne when, you get, when you're glorified? And Jesus said, can you drink of the cup I'm going to drink? Yes, we can drink of the cup. Well, they didn't really understand what they meant. They would ultimately drink of that cup. But here Jesus sits with them and says, Guys, if you're going to follow me, you are going to have to take up your cross and deny your own way. Give up your rights to everything, including life. I can imagine those guys sitting around saying, This just got real. 25, he says, if you hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And in hindsight, we can fast forward and look at what happened to every one of, of, of Jesus' disciples, of his apostles, and, and how they lived their lives and what it cost them. Let me just give you some examples. I won't go through all of them, but just give you some idea. Peter was crucified, but because he, was, he didn't want to be crucified the same way Jesus was, he was crucified upside down. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was beheaded by the emperor, under the Emperor Nero. Andrew, also said to have been crucified. Thomas, speared to death. Philip, tortured to death. Matthew, stabbed to death. Bartholomew, there's varying accounts, but we know that he was martyred. James was stoned and clubbed to death. Simon was martyred for refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Uh, Matthias was burned to death. We know that only the Apostle John was the only one to die of a ripe old age, despite the fact that they tried to boil in him oil, and he came out unscathed, maybe a little crispy. He came out unscathed. What, what's the point here? These guys got it. They got it. This is going to cost me everything. 
this is no longer a cliche. This isn't fun and games. Am I in or am I out? Folks, Jesus makes it clear that there's a cost involved in following him. In fact, he actually tries to dissuade some people. We see in, Matthew, sorry, in Luke chapter 9, verse 57 to 62, there's a bunch of guys who wanted to follow Jesus. They said, now, it says, Now it happened that they journeyed on the road, and someone said to him, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Oh, buddy, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, do you really know what you're saying? There's a cost here. This is not a life of comfort. He says, then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. In other words, no, you've got other priorities that are more important to you right now. Either you leave everything and you follow me or go and do your thing, but you can't have it both ways. Another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid farewell to those who are in my house. And Jesus said, no one having put his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom. You see, the cross is our ever-present reminder of the cost of true discipleship. It is the crucifixion, the putting to death continually of the self-will. You see, folks, we tend to focus on the blessings and the good things of God. And hey, these are good. We are right to focus on those things. We, God brings us into be His sons and daughters because He wants us to enjoy His love and His blessing. Yes, those are a part of it all. Agreed. But we must never forget that these blessings and our victory in Christ are nestled within the context of this broken world, in the context of trials and tribulations, of persecutions and self-denial. When all we focus on is what we get out of this, we end up with a warped and a distorted gospel that is all about ourselves. It's all about self-centered. Jesus died for me to save me from my sin, that I can go to heaven. It's self-gratifying so that he can bless me, so that I can be blessed and I can enjoy life. Does God want you to enjoy your life? Yes, he wants you to enjoy life in his kingdom, in his presence with his spirit. But you are not the end of the gospel. You are not the reason Jesus came to give you a good life. Jesus came to restore us to intimacy with the Father. And he re, he, he, so salvation means not just blessing for us, but that we in turn can be sown out into the world to shine his light, as we discussed last week. You see, we all enjoy the nice stuff. I like having nice things, folks. Every one of us does. Let's not be too so spiritual that we become pious. We like having nice things. We like having recognition and praise from men. We like having titles. These things push all our carnal buttons. And these things are not bad in themselves. They're not. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. The issue comes in when these things hold sway over our hearts. For example, we begin to make excuses for why we can't do what we know God expects us to do, because it's going to cost me this, and this is valuable to me. They exercise a measure of undue lordship or control within our hearts and lives. And what then happens is our obedience to God becomes subject to other factors. And Jesus says that's not going to do. When I'm saying, Lord, I want to follow you, but I don't want to give up that, then you don't really want to follow you want that. And you're free. You're welcome. You can have that. You can have that. 
but you're not going to go to where I want you to go because you're not prepared to pay the price. We may not want to offend somebody or we don't want to say the wrong thing because we have a reputation to uphold. You know, I carry this title in my workplace. I'm the boss. I'm the leader. I've got all these digits behind my name. If I start telling Jesus to people and speaking about stuff like that, you know, how's that going to, how am I then going to be able to fire them later? How am I then going to be able to discipline them later? Because the only way I know to do that is not in a very Christ-like way. <laughs> it, it's going to affect how I treat the people around me because, oh, I don't want them to think badly of me. I mean, we heard a testimony this morning about someone who became convicted about the principle of tithing. And instead of saying, geez, you know, I can't do this right now because I can't afford it because, you know, how then am I going to maintain my lifestyle? Instead, that person said, I need to do this. And he went off and he sold cars, which hold a very dear place in his heart, so that he could honor God first and walk in his principles. It wasn't an issue. It didn't become a stumbling block to him. Obedience rode over that. That's why I just, I love that testimony. Because I think so often we, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tithe and we'll give some to God. And I'll give God some obedience as if some obedience is enough. Yeah, I've got it wrong in this area, but I'm okay there. You know, at least I'm not. And we play the game. Folks, obedience to someone else will always cost you your own will. Obedience to God will always cost you your own will. And again, remember we spoke about how the struggle we have and how that's normal? Check out this verse from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Jesus grappled with obedience, folks. I think we often put him that, that he didn't struggle with these things. That we, we sometimes have this idea that Jesus had no will of his own. That's not true. Jesus grappled with his own will. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's sweating blood, he's praying intense prayers, saying, Father, if there's any other way, let it be so, yet not my will. In other words, I, he had a will, not my will, but yours be done. His will remained subjected. And he learned obedience. Jesus learned obedience towards the cross, on the cross, and through the cross. And in the same way, that obedience doesn't come easily to us. It was hard for Jesus. It will be hard for us because obedience is the ultimate form of honor and trust. The ultimate form of honor towards God and his word and trust in God and his word is that we actually do it, is that we obey no matter what the cost. And we learn how to do this. This is something we grow in. Again, don't compare yourself. What is God talking to your heart about? And this is how, let's, 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 let's carry on with the same principle of what Jesus said to his disciples. I want to read to you a portion of scripture out of Philippians chapter 2 of how Paul articulates the heart of Jesus. From verse 5, he says this, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he didn't try to hold on to his reputation or onto his stature, he, or onto his glory or onto his power. He, he, he was willing to, to, to release that all and relinquish that all so that, in verse 7, make himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, and became 
obedient. We see that process again. Jesus became obedient. How? Through doing what the Father said, even uh, to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, Jesus placed himself under rulership in a place of dependency. And this is the heart and the mindset of Christ. And this is the primary attribute that makes us like Jesus. You see, I think so often when we say we want to be like Jesus, we have an idea of being able to do miracles or only having love in our hearts towards people or just being kind or nice. To, to, to be like Jesus is to be submissive to the Father. That's it. You see, when, when, the disciple, when Jesus said to his disciples, you want to see the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. His heart was conformed to the likeness of God. And that's what it means to be a Christian. How's that for another big cliche? Christian. The word Christian. Again, it's like the cross. Christian's not just some Western cultural persuasion. It's not just a religious association. No, the title Christian was first given to the believers in a place called Ephesus. You know the story well. And it means little Christs, in essence. You see, up to that point, the Christians had been called disciples of Jesus. They'd been called saints. They'd been called believers or witnesses. Most of the time, they were called the followers of the way, the way of Jesus. But what happened is they, the people in Ephesus began to look at them and see how different they were and gave them the title. In, in some commentary I read this week, uh, I, I, it says that in Latin, the ending I-A-N, like in Christian, meant the party of. So Christian was the party of Jesus. Christians were sort of like saying Jesusites or Jesus people, describing people associated with Jesus. Boyce thinks that the idea that, that was that they were called the Christ ones. And the irony is this. In the beginning, it was used as a derogatory term to mock them. Oh, those are those Christ ones. Those are those weirdos. Those are those salty, salty lighty people. Those are the, the different ones. But the Christians actually embraced it. They embraced it. And they, they embraced it as, as an honor as an honor that in their difference and in being persecuted for being different, that they were actually being recognized as being like Christ. And that to them was a higher honor and a higher praise than, than they could ever have imagined or hoped for. Today, what do you believe? Oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I want to be an incognito Christian so nobody knows that I'm a Christian so that they don't have expectations of me. You think you've got a bad, I'm a pastor. <laughs> Go into conversations with people, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. You're a pastor, oh, and suddenly everything changes. What used to be comfortable conversation, now they, yeah, oh, okay. Don't want to be judged by you, brother. But yet, they carried this name as a mark of honor, that they should be considered worthy to be not only associated with Christ, but recognized to be like him. Wow. It was a huge honor to them. And folks, it ought to be a huge honor to us when somebody stops and says, there's something different about you. 
What is different about you? It's Jesus. The cross reminds us of the price that was paid for our salvation. But it also calls us to pay the same price in order to lay hold of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10 to 11 from the Passion Translation says this, We continually share in the death of Jesus in our own bodies so that the resurrection life of Jesus will be revealed through our humanity. We consider living to mean that we are constantly being handed over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus will be revealed through our humanity. You see, we, we're raised to think that death is something, you know, that's, that's an enemy to us, and we need to avoid it. But Jesus demonstrates to us, and this scripture backs it up, you know, what, what Paul is saying here, that death is actually a wondrous gift from God. It's the great liberator to that which keeps us from him. It, it's the only avenue through which we can be, lay off our old man and our sin nature and be forgiven from it and come into and become partakers of the likeness of Jesus Christ. When we see it as an enemy, we resist it and we avoid it. When we see it as a gift and usher into Christ-likeness, our willingness in our heart ought to change. I'm going to close out with one more portion of Scripture we're going to read together from John chapter 12. And again, just because we're so familiar with these, I'm reading it from the Passion Translation again. John 12, verses 20 to 26. Now, there were a number of foreigners among the nations who were worshippers at the feast. They went to Philip, who came from the area of Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Would you take us to see Jesus? We want to see him. So Philip went to find Andrew, and they both went to inform Jesus. So here we've got a sincere request from seekers. They want to see this Jesus that they've heard about. And here we have another one of those moments where Jesus drops bombshells. He replied to them, Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Let me make this clear. A single grain of wheat will never be more than a single grain of wheat until it drops into the ground and dies. In other words, gives up itself. Because when it sprouts, it produces a great harvest of wheat, all because one grain died. Now, in the commentary of the Passion Translation, I found this as I was studying up, and I think this is really great. I want to read it to you. The one grain is Jesus Christ, who will within days be offered as a sacrifice for sin on Calvary's cross. He will drop into the ground as a grain of wheat and bring forth a great harvest of seeds. This parable given to Philip and Andrew was meant to be Jesus' reply to the request by the non-Jewish seekers to see Jesus. Christ's answer? They will see me through you. As you follow me, you will also experience the dying and birthing experience. The harvest among the nations will come when we follow Jesus where he goes. Verse 25. The person who loves his life, Jesus says, and pampers himself will miss true life. Let's pause there. How many of you are prone to self-pampering? I'll, I'll put both hands up. I like to pamper myself. I like it. I like, let me put it better. I like to be pampered. 
We all do. But listen here, the person who loves his life and pampers himself will miss true life. You see, here's the thing I found about pampering myself. Now, no matter how much good food I eat, I'm always going to be hungry for more. No matter how long my wife massages my shoulders, I'm going to want more. I'm never satisfied. I'm never satisfied. And I don't find any significance or sense of self-fulfillment from being pampered. It's shallow. But yet when I do something for somebody else, when I lay my time aside and I try to be a blessing to somebody else, not only am I ministering to them, but I'm being ministered to in the process. Not only am I giving life, I'm receiving life and it's flowing through me. The person who loves his life and pampers himself will miss true life. But the one who detaches his life from this world and abandons himself to me will find true life and enjoy it forever. If you want to be my disciple, Jesus says, follow me and you will go where I am going. And where was Jesus going? To the cross. And if you truly follow me as my disciple, the Father will shower his favor upon your life. Folks, we've been talking from cliche to victory, uh, from cliche to character, as we've been talking about taking the word of God and actually letting it mean what it means and actually being willing to open our hearts and apply it, I need to round this out by talking about the cross, as you've heard talking about what does it really mean to be a Christian. We associate ourselves with that title. We associate ourselves with the, symbols and the, with the symbols and the emblems. But maybe our hope today that as we've kind of taken that proverbial box down out of our, our, our shelves and we've taken out that cross and we, we, we're getting a bit of a feeling this morning for the ruggedness of what the Christian life is really all about. And maybe as I've spoken to you, a few splinters have, have sunk in and, and embedded themselves in your, in your heart or in your conscience. I want to say to you today, let's, let's continue to press on. And let's allow the cross to have its full and its perfect work in our hearts and in our lives. So that all that which is of self, all that which is self-focused and focused on self-gratification, maybe we be willing to put it to the cross and allow it to be crucified. May we be willing to put our opinions and our convictions to the cross and allow them to be crucified so that we can adopt the convictions, the truth of who Jesus is, of what his word says about you and me, about the life that he came to give us and the life he desires to live through us so that we can go from calling ourselves Christians with very little influence to being people who don't care what we're called but shine the light of Jesus by his love, by his grace, and by his power into every circumstance and situation God places us. Regardless of what people may think, regardless of what people may say, that we would actually care more about them, that we would actually love them with the love of Jesus, that He loved us and gave His life for us, that we would love them with that love enough to be willing to pay whatever price, that they may too know the love of Jesus, which saves, which heals, which delivers, which transforms. 
We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.